Punctuation saves lives. I once saw a very funny meme. It was a picture of a grandma, and below it were words to this effect, let's eat grandma. And the message was, without the comma, uh, we're talking cannibalism. Let me explain. If the words we're reading were, let's eat grandma, that's an invitation to cannibalism. That's not good. But with the right wording and the right <laughs> uh, involvement of the English language in the use of commas and periods and all of that, we have a different message. Let's eat, comma, grandma. And that's an invitation to grandma to come join the table and for us to eat. And therefore, getting the matter right in that area saves lives. It was very funny. I say that because distinctions are absolutely vital in the same way. We must make right and biblical distinctions. And I want to talk about something I believe is very, very vital for us to grasp. You see, when you and I make a distinction between someone's body and their head, when we make a kind of distinction and say, uh, there's, there's, there's some problem with the head and we distinguish that from the body. The person suffers no loss at all. But if we separate a man's head from his body, he's now a dead man. See, the head and the body must stay together for life to continue. Similarly, in the same way, we make a distinction between justification and sanctification and we must never separate the two. Let me talk about that. Let's talk about justification. It is a legal courtroom word. It's defined as the act of God. It's God's activity. God justifies. It's the act of God when he declares a person just or right or righteous in his sight. Picture the legal courtroom and the judge declaring the innocence or the guilt of the person in front of him in justification God is declaring someone right in his sight and for the Christian this takes place the moment a sinner places their faith in the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ for the sinner who has faith in Jesus, God pronounces the sentence, I find you not guilty. I reckon, I count, I declare you to be righteous in my sight. You and I are forever at peace because of Christ. All of your sins were transferred to your sin-bearing substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took the full brunt of my, that's God's holy wrath for you. And what has been transferred to your account is the righteousness of my son who lived not only a sinless life, but a life fully pleasing me. And this very real earned righteousness by Christ is yours now and forever. That's what's taking place when God justifies the sinner. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian is a justified person. God has declared him in his court right in his sight because of Christ and because of Christ alone. What's amazing to us and at the very heart of the gospel message is that God does not wait until we are inherently righteous before he declares us righteous. He does not wait till we are fully holy in all that we can be and should be, living lives that are 100% satisfactory to him, and on that basis then declares us righteous. That's the view of Rome. That's the view of the Roman Catholic Church. But it's not the view of the Bible. God justifies, get this, the ungodly. Romans chapter 4 verse 5 tells us that. To the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. The very moment someone puts their faith in Jesus, all that Jesus is and all that he has done counts to the account of the sinner. So that while he has still million miles to go in sanctification, the moment he believes, God declares him right in the sight of God now and forever. It's a courtroom word. It's not based on the performance of the sinner. It's based on the satisfaction and performance of Jesus Christ. The life he laid down for us to forgive our sins at the cross and the righteous life of Christ he lived, that is counted to us. And the moment we believe, all that Christ is counts for us, counted to us as righteousness. How can God do that without compromising his holiness, compromising his justice? Well, he does this because the very real righteousness of Christ, just as our sin is very real, so the righteous life of Christ is very real, and that real righteousness has been given to the one who believes in Christ. Christ's righteousness is not a fake or phony or pretentious righteousness. It's real. He really pleased the Father always. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 describes the transfer. It says this, God made him, that's Jesus, God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 tells us this, Christ is our righteousness. Not that he, in grace, enables us to start the journey of righteousness, and with his help, with his grace, we can one day get there. No, Christ is our righteousness. He's made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus is our righteousness. He's our sanctification. Well, let's talk about sanctification. You see, justification happens in an instant, the moment a sinner places genuine faith in the Savior, renouncing their own uh, means of satisfying the demands of a holy God, Looking away from themselves, they look to Christ. They repent of their sin and trust the Savior. 
they may not understand this language, but if they're looking to Christ alone to save them, the moment they believe in Christ, justification takes place. In fact, it's a past tense word as Romans 5 verse 1 declares it, having been justified by faith. The one who's got faith in Jesus knows that they have previously been made just in the sight of God. They are presently believing, but the moment they believed, they were justified. Therefore, having been justified by faith. And faith itself is God's gift to us. So justification, that happens instantly. It's not up for renegotiation. Hear that. Justification is not the same as someone being let out of prison for a while, but the authorities still watching them. Uh, That's not it. It's a courtroom word whereby forever the sentence of justification has been declared concerning the sinner. It's not probation. It's justification. Probation is a happy word if you've been in a prison, but that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is way beyond that. It's wonderful to be let out of the prison, but if we can go back there into the prison of God's disfavor, it's not as great a good news as the true gospel is. And that way, if that was the case, our performance would be, and our ongoing performance would be the basis of our standing with God. That is anti-gospel totally against all that God has said in his word. Justification is not up for renegotiation. It's not probation. We do not negotiate with God and the devil might come with his lies or else we've got our own crazy, messed up, non-biblical thinking between our ears to say, I must maintain my justification by my performance. No, no, never. Justification is a legal word and it was procured by Christ in his life for us and in his death for us. What of sanctification? Well, there's a twofold understanding we need to grasp. Again, a distinction. Sanctification is something that happens the moment someone believes, and it is also an ongoing process. The process of becoming more and more holy, more and more separated to God in daily life. In the Old Testament, vessels, uh, golden cups and so on, were used for the house of God, that being the tabernacle or the temple. And these vessels were, quote, sanctified, end of quote, set apart for God's purpose. Uh, These were vessels never to be used for more mundane purposes. They were to be used only in the tabernacle or only in the temple. They were sanctified vessels. And in a real sense, the Christian is already sanctified in that he's set apart to God. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because a key word here is the tense in which This comes to us, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse 9. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were, notice that, were, past tense, you were washed. You were, past tense, sanctified. You were, past tense, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So in a sense, the Christian has already been sanctified. Christ is their sanctification. Again, quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. Let's get, let's get this. Let, let's be grounded in this. So in one sense, the Christian is justified because of his faith in Jesus, and that's a standing with God now and forever. He cannot grow in justification. He got everything the moment he believed. Christ and his righteousness, and you cannot add to that. 8,000 years from now, you'll not be more justified as a Christian than you are right now. You'll not be more righteous in the sight of God because Christ's righteousness is perfect, and that's the righteousness by which you have standing with God. So, in sanctification, God immediately, the moment we believe, sets us apart to Him. There's still much work for Him to do in our lives, right? We still don't look all that different from eight seconds before we were regenerated and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's lots of work for the Holy Spirit to do. He is the Holy Spirit and He comes to make us holy. And God sets us apart to Himself the moment we believe. And we can look back on sanctification just as we can look back on justification. You were sanctified. You were all that. You were all that. You were all of the descriptions of sinful humanity that was listed in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 6. Such were some of you. You lived lives of debauchery. You lived lives of defiance of God. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. So there's the past tense in all of these things, in these uh, distinctions of justification and sanctification. But there's still much work for us to uh, see happen in our lives. God has to do a lot in us to make us more like Jesus. And in the next sense of the word sanctification, the ongoing sanctification of the Christian, we can say this, no Christian on earth is entirely sanctified. While he still is in the body, there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And that's a lifelong battle. Just read Romans chapter 7, and that is the battle of the Christian. That's actually a wonderful thing to read because before God regenerates someone and makes them alive spiritually, the phrase is being born again, there's no real fight. We live for the works of the flesh, which are very evident. Just read Galatians chapter 5. The works of the flesh are, read the list. 
the flesh still is within us and it still wants its independence, uh, wants to do its own thing, wants to get angry and show it, wants to be impatient, wants to not uh, carry out the work of God and the actions of what God would be pleased with. And the Holy Spirit in us is seeking for us to live more Christ-centered lives, glorifying Christ. And he wants us to live in absolute, not defiance of God, but dependence upon God. And sanctification is therefore an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the true Christian. Let me say this, if there's no change, someone professes to know Christ, but there's no change, it causes me, though I'm not the ultimate judge, but biblically, you can say this, we're, we're not the judge, but we can be fruit inspectors. Uh, Jesus said about false teachers, you'll, you'll know them by their fruit. And if there's no fruit whatsoever, no desire for God, no desire for the Bible, no, not a little inkling. Now, there's many a Christian who said, I know I should and I want to, but other things distract me and I've been away from that in terms of my ongoing uh, sanctification. I, I, I get that, but there should be some pulse. Someone who's alive has a pulse. When medical teams come to the scene of an accident, uh, perhaps a very bad car accident, uh, they may see someone who's not looking too bad at all and they give them help, but when someone is in uh, a, a just non-moving state, what they do is look for signs of life. There should be signs of life if you're alive. And if you're alive spiritually, that's also the case. If God has justified you, he's also regenerated you. In fact, he does that first. He brings us to life and then we believe. The flesh has no interest. The nature of the flesh I'm talking about um, has no interest in Christ, no interest in God, not, no interest in the true gospel. Might want the benefits of God like I love to get guilt out of my head. Don't like living with that. Uh, I might like to avoid hell. Sure. I just don't want God as he really is until God gives me a new heart. That's what it means to be made alive spiritually. The Holy Spirit comes in, does divine surgery invisibly. Uh, read the end of John uh, chapter 3 and the discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works invisibly like the wind. We don't see wind, we see the effects of it. We see the trees swaying and leaves uh, flying past our heads and we see very much the effects of wind, but uh, we don't actually see wind. We don't see the work of the Holy Spirit physically with our eyes, but we certainly see the effects of the work of the Holy Spirit and it happens as he wills. Uh, that's very clear from John chapter 3. And when God works by the Holy Spirit to, in divine surgery, take out the heart of stone that has no interest in God, no interest in following the Lord Jesus, he puts in a heart of flesh that now beats to know Christ. And therefore, there will be change. But here's what I want to say. 
the change is not the basis of our justification. What you and I see in our lives is never, ever, ever the basis upon which God says, you're good, you're good with me, I I see what you're doing. No, it's always A-L-W, A-Y-S, always based. Our standing with God is always based on what Jesus has done, talking about right standing before him. So there's this ongoing battle of the flesh and the spirit, and that's a lifelong battle, and that's actually an improvement because there wasn't a battle before we were regenerated. The flesh just wants its independence of God. Romans 8, verse 7 7 and 8, it, it will not, it cannot submit to the law of God. It cannot. There's nothing in the flesh nature that wants God and his ways. And sanctification is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. So in sanctification, there's a sense in which we're already set apart to God. And there's another sense in which there's this ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. So knowing these two distinctions or the one distinction between justification and sanctification, let me affirm straight away that these two cannot be separated. Distinguished? Oh yeah. We make a distinction? Oh yes. But just like we make a distinction between the body and the head of a man and he suffers no loss, uh, there should never be a separation of the body and the head or else the man's a dead man. So, we make a distinction. Justification is the legal declaration of God regarding the sinner. He's right now in the sight of, uh, sight of God because of Christ, Christ alone, through grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone, based on the sure foundation of Scripture alone. That's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. And these two distinct, uh, these, these two understandings, justification and sanctification, we can distinguish between the two, but we can't separate the two. That's because of this. The truly justified person will be involved in the process of sanctification. If someone claims to be justified, but there's no desire, none, to be sanctified, to live a life holy to God, the claim to justification is proven to be fraudulent. He's a fraud. The justified man possesses the Holy Spirit, has the Holy Spirit residing within him. And he, the Holy Spirit, sets about the task of sanctification the moment he invades the human heart. And the Holy Spirit desires holiness. And he stirs up that desire in the heart of the true Christian. Now, the Christian still sins. I've mentioned Romans 7. Read it again. The Christian still sins. That's Paul as a believer having a heart desire to follow the law of God. That would not be true of him as an unregenerate person. And yet he often succumbs to the temptations around him. The good he wishes to do, he doesn't do. The evil he doesn't wish to do, he ends up doing. That's the battle in the Christian life. The Christian still sins, but now there's a struggle against sin. Whereas before, 
There was no struggle at all. The fact that you uh, now wish to be free from sin is an indication that the Holy Spirit's at work in the heart. Is that true of you? If you know what God has said in his word concerning what you are to do in life, in serving him, in obeying him, is there anything in you, is there a heartbeat spiritually that wants that? You want to do the will of God. That's a good indication that the Holy Spirit's at work in the heart. But it's not your desire that gives you that right standing with God, remember. This is simply the fruit, not the root of our justification. You see, if a person is opposite to that, in contrast to that, if a person is happy to stay in a lifestyle that knowingly displeases the Lord Jesus, that raises huge red warning flags to indicate, indicate we, we need to analyze the claim to true justification. If you know that the will of God is not that people live together before marriage, is there something in you that says, I, I, want, to, I want to obey Christ here? If there's no desire for that, I'm not the one saying you're in the kingdom or not, but it causes me to say, well, can we detect a spiritual pulse here? But if there's a desire to do the will of God, when you see it in the word of God, are you prepared to change? And that, when you find that, is a good indication the Holy Spirit is in there working about his purposes. Martin Luther gave an analogy once, and uh, it's very useful and he describes it like this. When we're justified, it's as though a doctor has just administered a sure and certain remedy for a fatal disease. Though the patient may still endure a temporary struggle with the residual effects of his illness, the outcome is no longer in doubt. The physician pronounces the patient cured, even though a rehabilitation process must still be carried out. That's the end of the analogy. But it's a good one because it's, that, that is the case in our justification. In Christ, God pronounces us just, right, by the imputation, the transfer, the counting towards us of the merits of his son, the Lord Jesus. You might have heard this. It's certainly worth bearing a, a repeat of it. Uh, someone says, I'm justified, just as if I'd never sinned. It was Jerry Bridges, I believe. I don't know if he was the first, but certainly I read of him going further with that. Justification is not merely that it's justified just as if I'd never sinned, but just as if I'd always obeyed. That's dramatic. That's because the basis of our justification is not us in any way at all, but the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And we've been given a righteousness that not only has never known sin, but has always obeyed the law of God. Do you remember the incident when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized. John was against the idea 
And Jesus, without sitting him down for Christianity 101, said, uh, sufficeth it, as King James puts it. Suffer this, John. Uh, It'll be explained to you later, perhaps, but here it is. Uh, Let's do this so as to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus came not only to die on the cross. Jesus didn't send him down to earth on, excuse me, the Father didn't send Jesus down to earth on a Friday to die and then um, beam him back up over a weekend of work in the resurrection. No, Jesus was born of a virgin and lived not only a sinless life, but a law-abiding life, God's law. He kept the law. And there in the baptism of John, God was instructing Israel to undergo baptism under John. And though Jesus had no need to repent, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. God was requiring Israel to undergo John's baptism. And Jesus said, I got to do this. I am going to, I'm here to live life as the true Israel as Israel under the law. And when God is telling Israel, undergo John's baptism, I'm going to do that too. And people could be speculating, oh, I wonder what Jesus did wrong, that he needs to uh, repent. Well, Jesus didn't have to repent, didn't need to repent, didn't repent. There was nothing for him to repent of. And here's what the Father did. While this was going on in the water, he bellowed out from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was making it clear. My son has done no wrong. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. And if you remember, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descended on him. The, the entire Trinity were, was involved in this. The Son was in the water. There are three persons in the Godhead. The Son was in the water, the Father bellowing out from heaven, and the Holy Spirit like a dove descending on him. And the message was, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Let there be no speculation as to the nature of Christ and his righteousness. And this Lord Jesus is not only without sin, but has all righteousness, kept the law for us, born under the law, as the book of Galatians tells us, kept the law, and God has justified the Christian with Jesus' righteousness. The moment the sinner believes. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us, what the outcome is if we are attempting to get to God by our works. Romans 3.20, it's a key verse. Underline it in your Bible if it's not familiar to you. For by works of the law, this is the action of man in law-keeping. You would think it would say, by works of the law, some people will make it. No. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, that's God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is holy, the law is good, the law is righteous. But man isn't, and man cannot keep the law. We are prone to wonder. 
Lord, I feel it. We are prone to leave the God we love, even as Christians. The law never has justified any human being. Look at that in your Bible. By works of the law, no human being, no one, will be justified in his sight. Some people have the idea that you, 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 if you're good enough, God will make sure you're, you're in heaven. No one's good enough. Everyone comes short of God's standard and God does not grade on a, grade on a curve. The standard is perfection. Jesus affirmed that. You must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not even perfect according to man's ideas. Well, I'm perfect compared to Stalin or Hitler. Well, that's not the, that's not the standard. The standard is God's own perfection. And you might say, well, no one's perfect. Yeah, that's the problem. Jesus said you must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And no one is justified by observing law. Why? Because through the law comes knowledge of sin. God says you must, you must, you must, and we haven't, we haven't, we haven't. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not, and we have, we have, we have. We have sins of commission, we have sins of omission, and each one of those is an act of treason against a holy God. And Romans 3 verse 21, the next verse says, But now, and Paul has labored the condition of both Jews and Gentiles. Chapter 3 verse 9, both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. And if we just read up to Romans 3, verse 20, there would be no good news. It would be everyone fails, everyone is a lawbreaker, no one gets to God by what they do. But, thank God for the but. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from observing law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, even though the Old Testament, everything of the law and the prophets told us this is the way it is. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There it is. God gives us righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ and it's for everybody who believes. Everyone who believes. For there's no distinction. All are in the same soup, all are in the same mess, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation means the removal of anger, the removal of wrath by means of a sacrifice. Talking of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, the removal of his anger by his blood, by his death on the cross, to be received by faith. Do you believe in the finished work of Jesus on the cross? Then God is propitiated. Wrath has been removed by Christ in his death. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. God is altogether just and holy and righteous and the justifier of the one who really works for it. Or one who has faith and does a whole lot of her things as well. No, 
here it is, hear the gospel, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, period. Well, I thought when we get to heaven, we'll be able to say, well, I, I, I did these things to get here. No, 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 no. Uh, Jesus did everything to get us there. That's why in heaven, all, A-double-L, all the glory goes to God for our salvation. Then what becomes of boasting? Verse 27. Well, it's not really encouraged. Is that what your Bible says? We, we don't want to really encourage people to boast. No, it's excluded. It's removed. Uh, there's no place for it. Boasting is excluded. Well, on what basis? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Look at this conclusion. Four. He's coming to a conclusion here. The conclusion of his argument, verse 28. Four. We hold, we maintain that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Look at verse 20. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, apart from our performance, apart from our performance. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. They're, they are justified the same way through the sinless, sin-bearing work of the Lord Jesus and faith in him. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The law is our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It says you've not done what is needed, but throw yourself on the one to come, and now we would say, the one who has come, the Lord Jesus. And that's the way everyone gets in the kingdom. Exhibit A is Abraham. Exhibit B is David. And that's where Paul goes in the next verses in Romans 4. He's basically saying this. This is not a new doctrine. Abraham got into God's good books by faith when he believed him. And same for David regarding the non-imputation of sin to his account. Should have been. Should have been that David could look at his ledger and see all the sins he's ever committed, and it's a blank page. Why? God justified David on the basis of what Christ would do. Just as he removes our sins based on what Christ has done. Now we're living this side, post-cross, post-crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that's where Paul goes in Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if, just, if, if Abraham was justified by works, by the things he did, he has something to boast about. But not before God. And then he goes to the scripture. Genesis 15 verse 6 is the quotation. For what does the scripture say? Paul obviously believed Genesis was scripture. And in quoting Genesis 15 says, what does the scripture say? And then he quotes, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him 
as righteousness. That's it. That's how Abraham gets in. And that's the way anyone gets in. That's the argument here. Now, look at verse 4 and verse 5, and we'll close with this. What Paul then does is use a workplace analogy. It's one we can all understand. When someone works, they are paid by an employer. Uh, They are remunerated. They are given uh, an exchange in the terms of money for the time and effort of the work. Uh, Oftentimes when someone works for an employer, they are paid by the hour, paid by the day, paid by the job. And when the worker is paid by the employer, it's not considered a gift. It is what is due to the one who worked. In fact, if the employer does not pay for the work, then there is the possibility and the right of the employer to take legal action against the employer because it was agreed upon, you, pay, you would pay me for the job that I do, for the work that I do. And here's where Paul goes in verse 4. Now to the one who works. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That's the point I've been making. But look at the contrast. And to the one who does not work. In, in Greek, as you look at the text, it reads as we Uh, translated into English in the original uh, word order. Verse 4 works like this, to the one who works, or to the working one. And verse 5, to the, and then there's an insertion of of one word, not. And so it's the complete opposite. It's total contrast. To the working one, verse 4, when, when someone's paid, it's not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the not working one, to the one who does not work. What a contrast, complete contrast. So, let's continue reading. To the one who does not work, but believes in him, that's in God, who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. So someone who's not working for it and is still ungodly, the moment he believes in the God who justifies, the faith is counted as righteousness. And exhibit A for this is Abraham. Exhibit B in this discussion is verse 6, David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed, quoting the Old Testament. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin, will not impute sin. Again, David goes to his spiritual ledger, expects to see all of his sins listed, and he finds none of them because God does not count his sin to David's account. It should be like this. David sins, God sees it, and counts that sin to David's account. But because of imputation. (laughs) Key message of the gospel. 
what Christ did. Our sins were transferred to Christ. And so for the believer, those sins are no longer ours. They are born by Christ. He is the sin bearer. Rejoice, Christian. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself. The emphasis in the Greek is he himself. It's, it's not just he, it's he himself. He did this, all of him. Everlastingly, all of him. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross. And this was not a legal fiction at all. This is real stuff, really. Our sins were transferred to Christ on the cross so that they would not be transferred to our account and stay in our account. So David and us would ever say, well, there it is. I've, I've got these bad deeds. Maybe if I do a lot, I can overcome them by my actions and do some good deeds. No, 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 no. First of all, that would violate all of the law courts of any land. You've... Uh, done these despicable things, yeah, and, uh, well, but I've also done these good things. Well, that, that doesn't matter. If, you, if you've killed somebody, you, you, you're going to jail. You're going to prison. No. At the cross, Jesus literally, what happened was the Father laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, laid on him the sin-bearing substitute, the suffering servant, the iniquity, the rebellion, the sin of us all. Blessed is the man, verse 8, Romans 4, against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Only Jews get this? Or... For the uncircumcised also. It was not. <laughs> it, it's, it's wonderful, get this. It's for everybody. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? And it asked the question, at what time was Abraham justified? After he was circumcised or before? After he'd done something? Or before he'd done something? Circumcision is an act. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And here's the answer. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Before he had done anything, God counted him as righteous in his sight because of faith. Praise the Lord. Get that distinction. Get the distinction between justification and sanctification. A justified person will have some measure of sanctification or else there wasn't regeneration. They're not really alive spiritually. But sanctification is never the basis of our justification. It's Jesus' life and his death that justifies us when we believe in Christ. I once uh, heard uh, an illustration of this about justification in the fact that it doesn't lead to more sinning. That's often the objection to what I'm declaring to you here in the gospel. That just leads to people being more free to sin. And uh, that's not true at all. It's actually the only sure, the only sure 
way of dealing with sin in the right way and achieving God's results. The illustration was of um, a base of operations. Uh, Imagine planes, bombers, going out from the base of operations to fight against, in this case, sin. These bombers are launched and what they go out to do is drop bombs on the strongholds of sin remaining in our lives. And they take off from the runway of sola fide, of justification by faith alone. And the missiles that we shoot against the incoming attack of sin and temptation, they're launched from this base of operations. The basis of operations is justification by faith alone. And though there's this lifelong offensive called Operation Sanctification, in which we're waging war against the remaining corruption that's within us, that lifelong triumphant offensive movement is sustained by the supply line of the Holy Spirit that comes from the secure home base, the unassailable home base of justification by faith alone. And this operation, this military operation, is going to be a success because of the unassailable home base. It's impenetrable. Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection, and now ascension to the Father's right hand, the place of all authority in this universe, Christ is unassailable. His righteousness is perfect. And while the Holy Spirit goes to work in our lives, it's on the basis of the perfect and finished work of the Savior, plus nothing. And that's why, as a Christian, the war will be won. God will win it. He'll get us full all the way to glory. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. He speaks as if it's already done. Speaks in the past tense form. These he glorified. He's going to get you there because of that unassailable home base. Let's make the distinction and once we understand it, I think our Hands go up, our hearts cry out as we sing, all glory to the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. He did it, and that will be our boast. We boast only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6 verse 14, Paul wrote, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. There's been a change. I no longer want to live for the world, for myself, for the world, the flesh, the devil. I want to live for Christ. But my living for Christ is never the basis of my standing before him, ever, in my best week as a Christian or in my worst. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the word of God. Help us to make this important, this vital vital distinction. Pronunciation may help and getting commas in the right place, vital, but there's nothing 
Nothing more vital than understanding how you save, not by anything we've done or will do, but by what God has done for us in the person and through the work of the Lord Jesus. Write this on our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.